Claire FM's Beyond Belief with Father Jerry Kenny. A very good evening to you and you're warmly welcome to join us for the next hour as we present Beyond Belief here on Claire FM. I do hope that you're safe and warm wherever you're listening to us and if you're driving that you have a safe journey. Father Jerry Kenny here in the chair this evening and tonight I'll be joined by many guests including our colleague Stephen Fletcher we'll be chatting later on in the programme and we'll also be hearing from Dr Sue O'Brien who has a number of books reviewed for us. We'll also be joined in conversation by Pat Coyle and Dr. Jim Cockery from Rome about the legacy of the late Pope Benedict XVI. But first, as always, we begin with some music. And here is the voice of Rod Stewart with People Get Ready.
Here we are again. Stephen, it's very good to be chatting to you all across the water. You're still in the UK. Yeah, I'm here. I was uh, hoping to get back, but, you know, events have uh, overtaken me, so I'm still here, but uh, hopefully we'll get back shortly. Well, the last time we were talking, we were talking about cold weather, but it's got quite mild and there's a touch of spring in the air because, of course, this week we're entering into the month of February. Yeah. And evenings are beginning to get a little bit brighter as we are we're moving on. And luckily, the temperature has risen and the weather is quite mild. Yeah, it's it's still quite chilly here, but it's now wet and grey and a bit miserable. So I think people this year are really looking forward to spring. You know, it's been a hard winter for all sorts of reasons. And uh, I think people are really looking forward and enjoying the fact that uh, it's not getting dark so early in the evenings. and. Uh, um, you know, all helps to lift the spirits, doesn't it? It sure does. Well, there was uh, some events I was at during the week back here, and I think it's been happening in a lot of our parishes. This was a celebration of Catholic Schools Week, and a lot of our primary schools in particular hosted a sort of an invitation to the grandparents of the children in the school uh, to come and visit the school during the school day. And that was a wonderful occasion as the grandparents began to see their grandchildren in action in the classroom and, you know, partook of a cup of tea and had some entertainment and that. And it really, you know, just shows you the bond that there is between grandparents and their grandchildren. 
and uh, how fruitful that that bond is. Yes, yes, it's uh, it, it's a very valuable thing as we spoke about last week, and uh, it's certainly something I see so much in the West there that communities are very close and they're intergenerational, and you know you have the grandparents living quite near to their grandchildren, which uh, in many places and certainly here in in the UK, I find that people disperse more, but certainly on the West Coast, I think we're very fortunate that we've got uh, very close communities and uh, it's it's good to be able to celebrate those. And of course, as I said, we're, we're moving into spring this coming week and the feast on next Wednesday, the 1st of February, we honour St. Bridget, a patroness of Ireland and noted for her hospitality particularly and also for her generosity to people and the stories of Bridget. And that will be honoured in all our parishes and in our schools as well. And of course, as a tradition, I know some schools are already beginning to make the St. Bridget's Cross, which is made out of the wreaths. And then, you know, in places like this scanner, there is St. Bridget's Well. So people will be going on, on traditional pilgrimage there around that. And there is that sort of touch of, you know, well, we're coming into the brighter times as we as we move in and celebrate and honour St. Bridget. And there's other feasts that we have around this time as well. On the 2nd of February, we celebrate the Feast of Candlemas, whereby we remember the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And it's usually a time where, you know, people bring candles that they might want to use at home for blessing. And that will be happening. And then there's another tradition as well. On the 3rd of February, with the Feast of St. Blaise, where people sometimes just come for a blessing on their throat because... The story of St. Blaise was that he was noted for a, a curing person who was choking with a fish bone. And that tradition has developed into a sort of a blessing for people to be protected from any ailments of the throat. And we're, we're living through a time where, you know, with COVID and with all the other viruses, you know, where colds and all of that are quite prevalent. So we ask the Lord to be with us and to help us. Uh, during this time. It's always good to touch into those traditions that remind us that even as we move forward in our modern world, that we have so much to learn from and be enriched by our traditions and our folklore and our spirituality. Yeah, indeed. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining us again in our conversation this week. And coming up on our program, we will have a little reflection on St. Bridget given to us by Sister Anne Crowley at the end of our program. Our program also will be featuring a little reflection back on the life of Pope Benedict XVI, uh, an interesting conversation with an Irish theologian on his legacy. Uh, so we've that to look forward to. So we've if you like, all sorts of people on our program. <laughs> and that's appropriate enough to introduce our next piece of music from Lion Warwick. Here is All Kinds of People. Thank you, Jerry. Bye now. All kinds of people should get Together with small kind of people Should get together and talk to each other All kinds of people should reach out And help one another 
kind of people should try to listen to young kind of people should try to listen and comfort each other all kinds of people should reach out and help one another Should feel compassion for dark kind of people. Should feel compassion and care for each other. All kinds of people should reach out and help one another. Sue O'Brien to Beyond Belief. At this time, Sue, you're coming to review some books for us and to pass on uh, the wisdom of your reviews for any of our book lovers uh, who in this time of the year might be browsing in the bookshops. And you've chosen two books for us tonight that you bring to our attention. Uh, yes, so the two books I'm going to talk about tonight are Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus and a big uh, compilation anthology book called The Bedside Companion for Book Lovers 
which is edited by Jane McMorland Hunter. So which of those would you like to talk about first? So let's start with The Bedside Companion. I was sent it uh, for my December birthday and I was very pleased when I opened it. It looked like a nice book. And then I saw that it gives you a reading for every day of the year. So, you know, on page 12, you've got the 1st of January and you have a little reading, which is from Rudyard Kipling. And then on the 2nd of January, you have another reading, which is from Walter Scott. And then uh, the next reading, you've got Oscar Wilde in there. You've got Samuel Beckett. You've got Wordsworth. You've got a different person for every day of the year. So I disciplined myself and decided I wouldn't start this on the 10th of December, but I would wait until New Year's Day and I would read the reading every single day. And I've, so far, (laughs) we're only in January, uh, but so far I've managed to do that and it's very, very enjoyable. And what is even more enjoyable is I've now discovered that my sister-in-law who gave me the the book then thought it looked such a nice book she asked for it for christmas from her son who gave it to her so when i'm reading the read you know the reading the allotted reading for the day i know that she is um and it's very nice so it's really a collection of and they're short pieces for they're each day collection from various authors absolutely from various authors and some of them uh, will be very familiar to people. Um, there's a bit of Dickens, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people are, will have read that. But I see that for the 27th of April, I'm just pushing it open, um, we've got a little bit of Paradise Lost by Milton. Now, I never did that at school, and uh, I've never done it since. I've never read it since. So I'm quite pleased I've got that to look forward to. And we've got 15th century, 17th century... 18th century, 19th century, 20th century people uh, from all over the world. Uh, 30th of March, we've got a little bit from The Great Gatsby. So I'm looking forward to seeing what else, what, what, what comes up. And I read it at night, so I get into bed and when I have a look and I think, oh, that's interesting, I've got him tonight. Uh, so it takes five minutes to read. And appropriately enough, it is a very good title. It is. Uh, I'm completely, was led um, and obediently used it as the bedside companion, so I read it in bed. So it's the bedside companion for book lovers, and it's published, who is the publisher? So uh, it's edited by Jane McMorland Hunter, and it's published by Batsford, and I know it's available at Eason's, and I think it's available at Omani's in Ennis, Um, so... I think it's quite easy to get hold of, actually. And the second book you have for us tonight is called Lessons in Chemistry. Tell us about this one. It's a lovely book. It's got a very, uh, for me, a very unappealing title, Lessons in Chemistry. Uh, It's got a very noticeable cover, uh, which is brightly coloured, and I had looked at it. It was very much a book of the moment, last autumn and winter, and sort of thought, oh, that's definitely not for me. And this is another gift which was sent to me for that December birthday, uh, this time by my sister, who said, don't think this is a chemistry textbook. I think I read it and I loved it and I thought it was marvellous. I read it and I loved it and I thought it was marvellous and I've sent it to uh, three or four people who I thought would also enjoy it, and that's a very unusual thing for me to do. The premise of the book is... uh, it, the, the, the main character 
is an extremely clever woman who is a gifted chemist. And she's a gifted chemist at a time when uh, that's an unusual thing for a woman to do. Um, and she suffers in a university where people don't really think that she's going to be able to be a chemist because she is a woman. But she meets another chemist who is very, very highly gifted. And for people who enjoy watching Big Bang Theory, I think, which I do very much, they will love the romantic lead in this because the romantic lead is a super, super clever, super intelligent, super nerdy chemist man. And he and the main heroine of the story then get together. Now, I don't want to then tell you what happens after that because it is it is an extraordinary book. The heroine of the book is an extraordinary woman and she ends up having quite a successful television career as a cook where she has everybody cooking in a chemical way uh, and she uh, fights her way through the television producers who don't want her to do this in this way at all. And I can see that I'm not really explaining this book as well. It is really enchanting. It is a totally charming book. And I don't think I've made it sound like that. Um, she has a dog and the dog is called 6.30 because he comes into their lives at 6.30. And 6.30 is taught 892 different words. So he has a massive vocabulary for a dog. I mean, our dogs have a vocabulary of about 12 words, if that. So it's... Uh, I. I can't tell you more about the book because you have to not have the plot spoiled. And the plot is, without the, without spoiling the plot, I can't really explain to you what happens in the book. But it is a book which shows enormous wisdom about human nature. It is a very uplifting book, even though there are sad moments in the book. It puts you in a good mood when you read it. It's beautiful. And book again, the title of the book? Is uh, Lessons in Chemistry. The author is Bonnie Garmus and the publisher is Penguin Random House. Sue, thank you very much for reviewing those two books. Uh, one is called, uh, the last one we've just looked at, there with you is called Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. And the other one is The Bedside Companion for Book Lovers. Sue, we look forward to chatting to you again about more books in the coming weeks. In the hall, on the wall, at a house in Reseda, is a poster held up. By two nails and a pin It's my daddy, the actor About to die with his boots on He's the man standing up there Beside Errol Flynn He got third or fourth billing At the end of each well, that don't mean much He would say with a grin 
But he held my hand tight As he pointed his name out Only four or five names Down below where Ulf Lynn Business of art Luck kisses some And she passes by others Disappointment and bourbon Are hard on the heart Now the women and beers And the years with old Errol They took their toll and took me from his side he kissed me goodbye at the old union station that's the last time i saw him the last time i cried now i'm sitting alone in a house in Reseda. Watching the late show as moonlight shines in, then up on the screen, well, here comes my daddy. It's a sad, funny feeling. Now I'm older than him. So you, daddy. Sons and you mothers Remember life's over Before it begins So love one another And stand close together As close as my dad did To old there of Barbara Cook in concert to singing the song Errol Flynn. You're tuned to Beyond Belief here on Claire FM on this Sunday the 29th of January. of December 2022, the death occurred of Pope Benedict XVI. He had been Pope Emeritus since 2013. Born in Germany in 1927, he was christened Joseph Aloysius Ratzinger. He was ordained a priest in 1951 in his native Bavaria 
and he embarked on an academic career. A noted theologian and scholar, he assisted with the workings of Vatican II in the 1960s, and after a distinguished academic career in theology, he became Archbishop of Munich and Freisberg from 1977 to 1982. He moved on to be Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 1981, a position he held until 2005, and then was elected as Pope. In the weeks since his death, his legacy as a theologian and as a Pope has received an analysis and scrutiny. Joining us this evening in conversation is Dr. Jim Corkery, an Irish Jesuit who lectures at the Jesuit Gregorian University in Rome. Dr. Corkery wrote his doctrinal thesis on the theology of Joseph Ratzinger, and in this interview with Pat Coyle, he examines the theological legacy of Pope Benedict XVI. Jim Corkery, you're an Irish Jesuit. You are lecturing in the Gregorian University in Rome, and you did your PhD on Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XV. Can you tell me, what are your initial reflections these days? Well, of course, I started to study his work for that doctoral thesis 35 years ago. So I feel a certain loss because I have walked with the books and the thought and indeed the controversies of this man over a lifetime of teaching theology, my lifetime and part of his lifetime. So I felt a certain sadness when he died. But also, I know from things I read and things he said that he was ready. He was indeed preparing for death for a long time. So I felt also that it was good that he died peacefully and without distress, it seems, other than weakness. And it was at the end of a life of enormous contribution. Tell me about your doctoral thesis on Joseph Ratzinger, because his theology was significant, and I want to talk to you about that and his theological legacy, and then also his papal legacy. Let's start with the theological. Well, yes, uh, I mean, I knew him much more through his theology. I never met him personally, or I was not taught by him or anything. And I was asked when I was in America, I was about 32, 33 years old at the time, uh, doing a licentiate in theology, a kind of master's. And I was looking in that work at the theology of Leonardo Boff, a liberation theologian. And I was looking at how he looks at the theology of grace through a social lens as a liberation theologian. And I was interested in that because I was interested also in questions of the relationship between faith and justice and a lot of people had talked about social sin, and I thought, St. Paul said, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. So let's look and see how grace could be conceived, not only individually and personally, but also socially. And uh, Boff had written Liberating Grace, a, a very good book, translated in the late 1970s, and that was a central book for my thesis. Now, while I was doing the thesis, Boff ran into trouble with the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, not for that book or for his Theology of Grace, but for a book he wrote on the church, on ecclesiology, uh, which was quite critical and negative about the church and its procedures and procedures with regard to theologians. Uh, the book was called Church, Charism and Power. So when all that happened, 
My teachers in the university, Catholic University in Washington, they knew I knew German. So that uh, certainly affected my life providentially because they said, why don't you dig into his theology and see why it is that he's so opposed to liberation theology? So that's how I came to do my doctorate on him. Not by the route of jumping from appreciation to greater appreciation to greater appreciation, but actually from a side that saw things differently. That's very interesting. So what did you realize? I mean, what what was Ratzinger's issue with the work of Boff? Well, Ratzinger had done two doctorates, as German professors often do. And one was on St. Augustine, his theology of the church, and one was on St. Bonaventure, medieval Franciscan, but in the Augustinian tradition, more or less. And from those studies, Ratzinger would have certainly been aware that the human being is fundamentally sinful, in need of grace, not capable of achieving much on his or her own. We are beggars before God, he wrote once. He wrote on another occasion, now 50, 60 years ago, uh, we have nothing that we have not received. Uh, These things are all true when you look at them, particularly in a certain tradition, but they leave you with the view of the human being who is not very capable of doing anything much on his or her own. And he was reading liberation theology and finding it very strong on what people could do to bring forward their existence, to move them towards salvation. It was a theology that emphasized doing, making a lot, much more than he thought was appropriate in terms of an understanding of the human being. So he pushed against that from his background in the idea that we are not makers, but much more receivers. He tied all this also to the time. He said we were living in the second age of technical rationality, an age that believed profoundly in progress, that was highly optimistic. At the end of the 60s, we had put somebody on the moon. The person of the future held everything in his or her hands. And Ratzinger saw this kind of emphasis, which was an emphasis actually in Europe and the West, plus the emphasis in liberation theology on being rather more involved in our own salvation as falsifying, really, what the human being is. And then there's one other thing. I know this is a bit theological and technical, maybe, but Ratzinger had said he didn't like liberation theology because of all that emphasis on um, making, perhaps making our own salvation. But he didn't like its understanding of salvation, which he thought was too inner-worldly you know, well-being in this world, where he said salvation is always God's gift. But what he thought was that underneath that notion of salvation was a materialistic understanding of the human being, one that came from the use of Marxism. He didn't accuse them of being Marxist, but he said effectively they take up a Marxist vision of history. They believe that structures make people good, whereas in fact it's people that make structures good. So his emphasis in theology were very much on the other side. You cannot say that he had nothing to say about our cooperation with God in the business of our salvation, nor can you say that liberation theologians had nothing to say about the way in which without God there is no salvation. But just two very different sets of emphases based on two very different kind of theological upbringings, and this made for a considerable clash. 
Yeah, because emphasis was what I was going to ask you. Was this a matter of emphasis or were there fundamental, non-negotiable doctrinal differences in the liberation theology and in the theology of Ratzinger? He thought there were emphases there which tilted their theologies away from central aspects of the theological tradition. To give one example, somebody with whom he said in the end he had a good dialogue It was Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian theologian who wrote a book called The Theology of Liberation. And Ratzinger gave a fairly sharp talk against it in Lima in Peru in 1985. And Ratzinger's idea was that while Gutierrez made the necessary distinctions between liberation from sin, liberation for the kingdom, for life with God and so on, that the real center was a kind of a utopian vision. And that envisaged a kind of an imminent worldview, an immanent worldview, salvation already now brought about by our action. And Ratzinger said, while the other two levels were there and acknowledged and even distinguished out, the motor of his theology was a kind of utopian vision of an innerworldly salvation and that that was more than a wrong emphasis it tended in the direction of being at variance with the teaching of the church. And when he had that good discussion with him, did he still hold that he was right about good theories or did he move? I mean, was he somebody open in his theology to some movement or do, do you think he was consistent that he wrote and believed all the way through his life as a theologian? Well, I think both those things, because one question you ask is about behavior and the other question is actually about whether one's thought is consistent and takes the same line. He's pretty consistent in his thought based on the fundamentals of his early studies. Also, his closeness maybe to Lutherans. They don't like you talking about salvation being brought about by human effort in any way. Uh, There's a consistency in his theological thought, but he did dialogue with theologians, and Gutierrez was one in question because there was an over and back. Now, dialogue takes a long time in the church because so 15 years later, after the publication in English of A Theology of Liberation, Gutierrez published a book again, and he, in a new introduction, dispelled any notion that he had an imminentist, this worldly view of salvation. And he said, if I've given such an impression, I haven't intended to. A German theologian called Michael Sievernich said this showed um, considerable humility on Gutierrez's part. It seems that Ratzinger was obviously happy also that he said that, he clarified that, because later Ratzinger referred to that dialogue between the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and that theologian as a profitable one. It's interesting that I didn't notice that Gutierrez, in reissuing the book after 15 years, substantially changed the book itself. But he was much more careful about utopian language, and he was also careful about that business of imminentism. Another theologian said that he did not use the word utopia in a Marxist sense. He used it in the sense of a kind of a vision of an ideal state of affairs, which would draw one forward and simply motivate one to move forward to bring about greater social justice. I think that defense has some merit too. Like the kingdom of God, the way Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Of course, they all make the kingdom of God central. But how do you see the kingdom of God and how do you see it operating in theology? Ratzinger's stress in is, above all, that the kingdom is gift. The kingdom is not here. It is not yet. If there were fragments of it, it's as much as you would have. 
And he's not even sure about fragments of salvation, especially not coming from our activity. Whereas, of course, other theologians more freely speak about our cooperation in the business of at least bringing about the kingdom incipiently. And what's uh, your own thinking, Jim? Like, you did your work on this, you're a theologian. Where do you stand now with it having purveyed the liberation theology in Ratzinger and the debate? Where I stand is, I think that the critique of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was too severe. I didn't see that level of imminentism in the book of Gutierrez. Also, there are no dogmas in the area of salvation in theology. So when you asked me earlier, was some doctrine contradicted? Well, certainly some dogma wasn't. Ratzinger would say the church's tradition, teaching, emphases with regard to salvation were certainly set aside or moved away from. But there actually wasn't a dogma. All would have agreed that we are saved by God. They might have emphasized different aspects of the salvation. Ratzinger, when he talks about salvation, emphasizes three things we can't give ourselves. Salvation is salvation from sin. Very important. It's also divinization, sharing in the divine nature. And the third thing it is, is resurrection from the dead. So his understanding of salvation is very much focused on, in some ways you could say, the life of the world come. Yeah, the afterlife. Whereas, yeah. whereas obviously in the situation in Latin America, where there was rampant poverty, injustice, people suffering greatly, infant mortality rates very high, people were rather focused on the reality round about. And more than that, as theologians, they knew that people would find it difficult to believe if salvation, when they were told about it, seemed to have very little to do with life in the present world. I tend towards that influence too. I, I think salvation, there need to be signs of it now, a touch of it now, an experience of it now, if the belief in salvation is to become credible. What strikes me listening to you is that one of the big differences between, say, Gutierrez and Boff and between Cardinal Ratzinger is that as head of the CDF at the time, the Congregation for Doctrine and Faith, he had the power to silence people, to silence theologians, and certainly for quite some time had the reputation for being rather ruthless in how he dealt with theologians. Is that correct? Is that how you would see it? Have you a comment on that? Rather ruthless. That's a rather uh, significant <laughs> phrase. I, I would think he was hard sometimes, certainly. But I think this, I may be wrong because I don't have inside information, Ratzinger was a professor who corrected people's works as their professor and teacher. And he knew that to put a page into a person's book, which pointed out the errors of the person, whatever they were, in logic, in background philosophy, or in closeness to the teaching of the church, that was sufficient to do. So Ratzinger's own tendency was simply to point out the errors. He wasn't an enthusiast for punitive measures. Those punitive measures occurred more under the papacy of John Paul II, you know, periods of silence, theologians not being allowed to write or teach in the Catholic faculty. John Paul II once wrote a book called The Acting Person, and he was an acting person. And I think he was definitely far harder on dissent, but it was the job of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith to find disagreement. Let's not call it dissent, which is such a... But to find disagreement in theologians and to surface that and to point it out. But very often the measures were taken. I don't think... I'm not even sure that Ratzinger's office had the power to impose such measures. Now, I don't know because I didn't work there. I was never, thank God, so far, an object of investigation. But it seems to me that 
looking over the course of the years, I've been teaching theology 31, 32 years, that it was a severe time during the papacy of John Paul II and Ratzinger in the 80s and 90s, that the severity lessened after Ratzinger became Pope. And now I don't find in a quick glance at the website, which is all I had time to take, of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Dicastery, as it's now called, I don't find any individuals being investigated. But I know there are still cases unresolved. There are people suffering. But the last book that I could find on the list was Margaret Farley's Just Love, and that was in 2012, before the papacy of Francis. It's not that Francis is soft on doctrine, but I think he might want it to be worked out more in discussion between theologians and believers in a way where they point out to each other what is good and what is less good, questionable and less questionable. And I see in Ratzinger too, like for example, once he said, yes, the procedures of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith could be more just. We must always aim at justice. There are moments when he said things like that and also tried to conduct later dialogues perhaps a bit more amicably than earlier ones. There's some evidence in his life of his moving in that direction. Because they do say that when he was younger, he actually wrote about the injustice of how the CDF dealt with theologians, well, but he moved away from that. It wasn't the CDF at that time, you know, it was the Holy Office under Cardinal Ottaviani. And he certainly wrote that its procedures and methods should be updated. But then they were at the council. The name was changed, became the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And they do have norms for how they conduct their dialogues. They don't work completely without bridle, you know. And yeah, he did say that those could be fair, they should be observed, and they should they could be made more just. Yeah, because I think, in fairness, by any standards, they wouldn't hold in any normal secular court of democratic law, you know, the, the way people are treated. And, and you know. There are people listening to you now who yeah. and will eventually be listening to me, and yeah. they'll say, I am rather soft on him. And they'll say, people were investigated without knowing they were under yeah. investigation. That yeah. is true. And I think that is wrong. Yeah. And it was often not clear to people what they were accused of, that they were being investigated, and worst of all, by whom the accusation was made. made yeah. I can't and won't defend any of that, and I think that shouldn't happen. One other question. You know this whole debate in theology about relativism and the role of history and development. Ratzinger, you mentioned Bonaventure there, but more open in that regard toward history and time, as opposed to, say, people who took a more neo-Thomistic line after Thomas Aquinas. Would you see that in Ratzinger's work? Is he a bit more open to the impact of history on our lives and on how we understand ourselves before God? At the same time, he was very concerned about relativism, wasn't he, and the truth was absolute. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of things there. And, and the danger in this conversation is that the legacy of Ratzinger. Now, we have talked about his theological legacy in terms of behaviors where he did things that didn't always please everybody. But his own theological synthesis is a remarkable edifice. It's not a system, but it's certainly a coherent body of knowledge. It fills now some 15 or 16 fat volumes. And what he got from Bonaventure, for example, to just take one point that you make there, he was never a neo-scholastic. He was taught dry, arid, top-down neo-scholasticism early on in the seminary. 
but he managed to avoid it when he went to Munich University because he found a teacher there, a man called Gottlieb Zöngen, who was an enthusiast for Augustine and Bonaventure and was an enthusiast also for theology done in a different idiom. That man wasn't a neo-scholastic, so theology wasn't done in terms of definitions that you proved with proof texts and so on. And Ratzinger instinctively went to that side and stayed on that side because he preferred an existentialist, personalist, dialogical approach in theology, even to the point that his major second doctorate was on the theology of Revelation. And instead of, as was traditional at the time, speaking about Revelation as God communicating truths about himself, so a knowledge-based understanding of Revelation, Ratzinger said, you don't find that in Bonaventure. You find in Bonaventure that Revelation is an act concept, and no revelation occurs unless there is somebody, a subject, who is revealed to. So Revelation is relational. Dialogical, God speaks, and God speaks in history. And God is only speaking when there is a subject to listen to God. Now, the fundamental subject who listens to God is the church, but at the center of his theology is an encounter with Jesus Christ for everyone. If you read the document on Revelation in Vatican II, that is dialogical, personalist, historical, ecumenical, etc., a huge amount of that is owed to Ratzinger. That's an important thing to point out. And that was Dr. Jim Corkery, who lectures at the Jesuit Gregorian University in Rome, speaking to Pat Coyle of the Jesuit Communications Office on the legacy of Benedict XVI. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about uh, Pope Benedict XVI, then our own Bishop, Bishop Finton Monhan, has just published a book entitled His Homeward Journey, The Life and Works of Pope Benedict XVI. And in the coming weeks, we hope to be able to chat to Bishop Finton about this particular work. The book by Bishop Finton is available now in bookshops and from the Veritas bookstores.
the music of Puccini there and the humming chorus from Madama Butterfly. You're tuned to Beyond Belief here on Clare FM this Sunday evening and it's time now on our programme for a little reflection and prayer. Well, during this week, we enter the month of February and the 1st of February is dedicated to the Feast of St. Bridget, the patroness of Ireland. For our reflection this evening, we mark that feast on the 1st of February with a reflection from Sister Anne Crowley. May Bridget bless each heart today, bring springtime hope and harmony. We breathe your name as your mantle of peace spreads over our people, our country, our world. You bring light into darkness, hope to the downtrodden. You are the voice of the weary and the poor. Goddess of the dawn, gather us beneath your cloak, Cover us with your faith. Lead us along the path of justice and holiness. With you, we welcome spring's awakening. Bring harmony where there is unrest. Calm us and encourage us. Heal us and nurture us. Let your church and holy wells refresh our faith. We weave fresh rushes in your memory. Reminders of Jesus crucified, protecting our homes. Mwirinagwel, teach us how to keep faith alive. Let us sit beneath your oak in silent prayer, in reverence and awe of God's creation.
with the time approaching 10 o'clock on this Sunday evening is coming to the end of our program of Beyond Belief for this Sunday night. We thank you for your company and we're very grateful to all our contributors to the program this evening. To Dr. Sue O'Brien for her review of books, to Dr. Jim Corkery and Pat Coyle for their conversation about the life and legacy of our late Pope Benedict XVI. To Sister Anne Crowley for her reflection on St. Bridget and of course to my colleague Stephen Fletcher for our chat earlier and for producing our programme here this evening. We remind you that our programmes of Beyond Belief and Sunday Prayer are available for download on the Clare FM website by going to the catch-up facility. And we'll be with you again next Sunday early in the morning at a quarter to eight for Sunday prayer and later on next Sunday evening again at nine o'clock for Beyond Belief. In the meantime, this is Father Jerry Kenny signing off on behalf of the Beyond Belief team to the music of Bill Whelan's Step Into Spring on this Sunday night as we look forward to the month of February. May God's blessing be with you. Slaw of the Spanish.